The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. I'm Darren Fonda, Managing Editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we're talking to Joseph Kalish, Chief Global Macro Strategist for Ned Davis Research. Thanks for being here, Joe. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. So you're a big picture strategist. Uh, so let's start with that. And then we'll dig into some of your views on banks and real estate, which are two sectors that are under quite a bit of pressure right now. Um, just on a, a macro level, I think there's a, a big concern, aside from the debt ceiling right now, about whether the economy uh, will tip into a recession due to the Fed's uh, interest rate hikes, um, combined with a potential credit crunch due to a slowdown in bank lending. The market seems to be pricing in a mild recession starting in late 2023 or early 2024. And I think there's a widespread view that the Fed will even cut rates a little bit as growth starts to slow. Do you think that the market is right? For the most part, Darren, the market is in line with our view. We're leaning toward the case that we'll have a recession either late this year or early next year, led by tighter credit conditions. But it's not a lock either. And the reason for that is that employment continues to be strong, and it is very hard to get a recession without a decline in consumption. And in order to get a decline in consumption, you need to have job loss or some galvanizing event. And apparently the banking crisis or you know, turmoil that we had back in March wasn't a significant enough event uh, to be a, a, a galvanizing event. So this is a very unusual economic cycle in that because of the post-pandemic period where people went from goods to services, we're not in lockstep. And so the big drag from last year, which was housing, is basically going away this year. And inventories are normally, uh, and inventory corrections and and drawdowns are normally very relatively short in duration. Um, and, And so we could end up, as we've seen, this something called real final sales to uh, domestic purchasers actually holding up pretty well. So we need to see the job loss in order to generate the recession. So it's, it's not really clear to me at this point whether we'll technically have that recession because everything has been spread out. We could end up with a period of very soft or s- soggy growth, that's called the low-trend growth, zero to two percent or so for several quarters in lieu of a recession but right now we're still tilting toward the odds of recession but there is a decent alternative case as well yeah i mean i think there's very little um signs pointing to the actual job losses that would be required or necessary i think to tip the economy into a recession i mean the unemployment rate is still extremely low um we are seeing some slowdowns elsewhere uh, you know, in the economy, maybe some slowdowns in consumer spending. Um, you know, housing continues to be an overhang. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I think the big, I think a big question uh, now is the banks and the bank's role in extending credit. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had this uh, sort of mini crisis a few months ago with the failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature and First Republic, uh, and a lot of fears about that causing a broader contagion or broader banking meltdown. There was a huge flight of deposits from the regionals to the mega banks. Um, I think about a, uh, all, overall, banks have seen about a trillion dollars in uh, deposits leave over the last year's interest rates have increased. And I think the regionals have been hit pretty hard by that. Um, but I think the bigger question is whether uh, these pressures are causing or will cause um, a bona fide credit crunch. In other words, a real tightening of lending to all sorts of businesses and consumers to the point that consumer spending kind of falls off a cliff and then we, you know, maybe get a drop in unemployment and we get the recession that everybody in the markets um, appear to be um, anticipating. Is, is that the scenario that we're looking at? Um, and, you know, what are we seeing in terms of bank lending and banks extending credit right now? So I think it's a, a good point. People sometimes want to equate credit tightening with how many additional rate hikes the Fed might do. And I, I don't think that's the right question to be asking. I think the right question to be asking is, when does this credit tightening actually impact employment? And what we found in our research is that it tends to have an impact on employment a couple of quarters later. So if we're seeing some sort of credit fallout, we should start to see that in Q4. And that's why we said earlier that if we're going to see a recession, it might be late this year, early next year, because that's when this credit tightening really should start to impact things. Now, in terms of the deposit flight, uh, there was an initial flight of deposits. We had actually been seeing deposits declining before these banks failed. And we're now down about five or six percent on deposits. Um, that has stabilized recently, but what I'm concerned about here is that we're moving into a profitability stage. And what we've seen is even the deposits that are staying within the banking system, there is more movement toward higher-yielding products like time deposits, like CDs. And so while we've seen a 5% decline or so in total deposits, uh, demand deposits and the like are down 7 to 8%, but time deposits are actually up 30%. So it's costing banks more to hold on to their deposits than it was previously. And part of this had nothing to do with the bank failures, but just the fact that Interest rates were being raised, and people were seeking alternative um, returns on their on their assets rather than the very meager to sometimes zero returns they were getting at the banks. And so we've seen this mix shift in the deposits. At the same time, the banks are concerned as well about the, the health of the economy going forward, so they're less likely to be making um, these more risky loans. And so on the, on the loan side, they're pulling it back. 
On the uh, funding side, they're seeing an increase in funding costs. And we don't yet see the ingredients for a credit crunch at this time, but we're heading in that direction. And so we have a model that we look at, our credit conditions index, which measures the cost and availability of credit to households and businesses. And it's showing some tightening of credit conditions. We're seeing a clear slowdown in loan growth. Um, but we're still in positive territory on that index. Our index is at 60%. And prior to past recessions, the index has dropped below 50% before we've seen that credit crunch start to hit. So we're still several you know, maybe a couple of quarters off before we get into that kind of negative territory. Now, we are seeing some slowing in loan growth. As I mentioned, if you look at business loan demand, we're down about 6% on an annualized basis over the last 13 weeks. Um, you know, real estate loan growth has been uh, has slowed sharply over the last 13 weeks. Uh, we were up in double-digit territory. We're now down about um, – you know, uh, about five percent or so, and consumer loan growth has been cut in half from where we were uh, just at the beginning of last year. So we are starting to see this um, credit slowing in terms of bank lending, and that's what should hit the economy. But it may take a couple of quarters to actually see that happen. Yeah. So I mean, this could be the soft landing that uh, I think the markets would like to see, and I know the Fed would love to see, uh, and it would probably be pretty good for stocks as well. So let's, uh, and we'll talk about the impact of commercial real estate um, on on the banks uh, in in a minute or so. But first, I just wanted to get you to the investing side of this. Uh, you know, if you're looking at bank stocks or considering bank stocks or the sector overall, um, is this a, a good entry point? Um, and if it is, would you be distinguishing between the regionals um, and, and the mega banks? Or would you just kind of just basically be buying the whole sector? Or would you say, forget it? I don't like the sector right now. The market loves AI. It loves tech. Um, there's just all kinds of headwinds for banks uh, as we head into a slowdown. And so much money is rotating into these tech-related themes that banks are just destined to lag, at least over the near term? So I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. Of course, short term, you know, we, we could have a, a rally in some of these oversold regional banks. And, but I think from a longer term perspective, uh, we should be expecting to see perhaps some additional regulation on the non-big banks or, you know, so those banks to have less than 250 billion in assets, which are subject to the more stringent regulations. And it's not clear to me that increased regulation will will uh, prevent you know future problems, but they may mitigate some of the issues that we had seen. I mean, some of the reasons for the failure clearly had to do with bank management, but there was also failures in supervision. Uh, and maybe there was some regulatory rollback as well in there. So the large banks aren't subject to that. They've already went through this in Dodd-Frank, and it actually, I think, created some of those problems. But let's let's just answer your, your, your question. 
so large banks are not going to have more regulation put on them. It's, it's going to be those ones under $250 billion that may have more regulation added. And, and so the, these, these banks may end up behaving more as financial utilities. But there's an, another aspect that I think is very important, Darren, that you just raised here, is that who is spending the most on technology? It's the large banks. Uh, and, and those are the ones are more likely to integrate your AI-related themes, which is going to become a part of our lives and everyone's life. And we should see further consolidation among the smaller banks because they just don't have the budgets to spend on technology the way the larger banks do. So, Joe, what's think- Sorry, let me just interrupt you for one second, because you made an interesting point. What is an example of AI, uh, you know, use by the big banks? How would they be using AI in the future? So, and just there was just a a new story this morning that uh, J.P. Morgan was rolling out an uh, AI-derived product for asset management to help with some of their uh, wealth clients, uh, and 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 so it's just a part of that offering. Uh, And and so this is again, it's these large banks that are going to be able to move first on that, probably more so than the than the smaller banks. But Joe, can can banks outperform in at this point in the economic cycle? So normally, what you see are the banks after the Fed stops raising rates do reasonably well relative to the the overall market. But we're, it's not clear yet that we've seen the end of the tightening cycle. So. The Fed will probably pause or skip this meeting in June and then continue to look at the data that's coming in. We have a non-farm payrolls report on Friday. We'll get another inflation report before the next Fed meeting, and then maybe they can uh, see what's happening unless there's a big outside surprise. Give this a chance for inflation to come down, the economy to cool off, have a couple of uh, uh, reports under their belt, and if they need to, maybe they can hike again at the following meeting. And so it's not clear that we've had the last rate hike, um, but in general, banks are cyclicals, and they really aren't sort of the premier performers, so uh, not overly enthusiastic about the bank's at this point, but if we get the end of the tightening cycle and behind us, the banks might be able to perform a little bit better. So performing a little bit better isn't a resounding endorsement. Um, if we're going to head into a slowdown or recession, are you saying you don't want to be in a cyclical sector like the banks and you want to emphasize more defensive sectors? Yes, I think uh, if you look at the cyclicals and some of the underweights that we're recommending right now on industrials and, and, and the real estate sector, these are classic cyclical sectors. And, and so we really don't want to be overly exposed if, as the economy perhaps slows down due to tighter credit later in the year. So it's not really the great environment for cyclicals and defensive plays and things like technology uh, you know, make probably the most sense at this point. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about real estate. Um, there's a lot of concern um, on a number of fronts about the real estate market. Um, you know, the residential market has slowed a lot, uh, obviously, and but there's also a big concern about uh, commercial real estate and specifically office real estate, which is still facing a pretty big hangover from the pandemic, where a lot of workers uh, stayed home um, and have partly come back to hybrid work. But I don't think we're seeing office um, occupancy rates that are back to pre-pandemic levels. And that's raising fears that um, a lot of office properties um, are uh, not valued appropriately on bank um, balance sheets, uh, meaning that they're probably worth less than they were before the pandemic. So we could see some write downs. Um, and then a lot of these properties will have to be refinanced at higher rates. Um, now that might be doable, but uh, you know we could see an increase in 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 foreclosures. So uh, you know one question is um, you know how are banks, particularly the regionals, which are more exposed to commercial and office than the mega banks, how are they being impacted by the slowdown? Um, and before you answer, Joe, I would just like to remind the audience if you'd like to submit a question, um, please go ahead and do that, and we'll get to a few questions um, in a minute or two. Uh, so I think it's important to try to understand the bank's exposure to commercial real estate in general, and then we'll talk about office specifically. So part of the result of the Dodd-Frank regulation was to, because the larger banks were thought to be more complex, that they needed more capital, more liquidity, they were put under stress tests, uh, and, and this was less of an issue for the smaller smaller institutions. So what happened is that because the large banks had more capital that they had to put aside to meet regulatory obligations, that there was less capital available for lending. And so that lending ended up going to the smaller institutions. And so they increased their share of commercial real estate lending from about 55% to 70%. So now the top 25 banks only have a 30% share of commercial real estate loans in the banking system. And the banks below that have a 70% share. And most of this, so looking at it from a different perspective, is in what I, we would call SMID, right? The small and mid-sized banks. So from $100 million in assets to up to $10 billion. And they had roughly, of their loans outstanding, roughly one quarter of those loans were in commercial real estate. So this has really been a problem for these banks between this $100 million and $10 billion in assets. Now, within the overall sort of investment-grade commercial real estate landscape, about 25% of properties are office. And another 13% is in retail, which hasn't been too great over the last few years either. So what, we, what you want to look for is that exposure to office. Um, my travels around the country, I'm seeing many places that still look pretty empty. Um, even if it's hybrid work. Uh, and, and so within office, you have to make a distinction between 
the newer buildings where people want to be because they are more green, they maybe uh, meet some of the ESG objectives of some corporations, and the ones that are older that don't meet those requirements. And it's costly to retrofit buildings if you can even do it, if you get the zoning and approvals to do it. And so we'd be very reluctant. We've been underweight, underexposed, basically saying avoid office for quite some time, whereas we have been much more favorable on the industrial side, where we had the data centers and the cell phone towers and the warehouses. And, and so that has been a much better place to be focusing your attention. So, okay, so like it, so in real estate, if you're going to be investing in, in REITs, real estate investment trusts, would you would recommend or suggest emphasizing um, more of the subsectors that have uh, secular tailwinds like tech, uh, data centers, uh, warehouses, logistics centers, and avoiding uh, office and real estate? So in general, yes. But here's the real thing about REITs that most people don't know. In the S&P 500, office REITs are only 3% of the index. Not the 25% that we see in all sort of commercial property. So it has a very small exposure, but REITs have gotten beaten up in general because investors expect the economy to slow down at a minimum, if not go into recession. And normally commercial real estate does not do well during recessions. And so there is a, a, a lot that's being priced in, I think already, into the real estate sector. And if people have been worried about the real estate sector because of office, it's a bit misplaced. So this is for, you know, and normally REITs correlate quite closely with the S&P. So if we do get some sort of, you know, uh, decline or some of this AI, um, you know, fever wears off over the next few months and we get a, a decline in the market, um, you know, let, let's see how, how REITs perform then, because REITs might be providing some longer-term opportunities for those who are interested, in, particularly in, in picking up some more income. It really is a big mismatch and perception between what is out there in commercial real estate and what's in the REIT space. So, so you said that office REITs are 3% of the S&P 500 or 3% of the REIT of the real estate sector within the S&P 500? of the real estate sector within the S&P 500. So it's so the real, very, very, okay. So it's a very tiny percentage of the step of the sector. And yet the sector has done very poorly this year. It's down around 3% against a roughly 10% increase for the broader S&P 500 index. So it's out, it's underperforming by 13 percentage points. You know, the yields have gotten uh, a bit more attractive, um, but it does still seem like there's this, headwind um, overall that, you know, real estate is facing as a somewhat cyclical sector um, and a somewhat rate sensitive sector as well as, as rates have increased. So let's go to some questions. Um, so Lee asks, um, you said earlier that you expect a recession to occur in a few quarters. Do you also expect a stock market retreat in lockstep with this? Uh, and if not, what do you expect for the stock market when the expected recession occurs? 
So normally what happens is the stock market will respond to developments in the economy. And if the economy goes into recession, normally the stock market is declining into the early phases of that recession. Now, there are a couple of offsets here, and this is why that call about recession is actually quite critical, because if we go into a sluggish period uh, of below-trend growth, we don't have to take out the lows from last year. The lows from last year can hold. We've seen profits holding up in part because we're seeing increased, um, you know, we're seeing price increases being passed on. And again, the, what you can get from the technology sector uh, could uh, di- you know, distract people from the broader, quote, market and that we're seeing in some of these cyclical sectors. So the cyclical sectors will probably get hit. It, it's, I, I don't know if we'll see that come through on the tech side. I suspect we would see some, uh, some, some uh, rollover uh, uh, in, into that sector as some of the maybe tech spending uh, comes under, under question. But uh, that, that's the critical call about, uh, about the recession. So I think from a valuation standpoint, it's, it's a little rich, but some of that richness is coming from the technology stocks. Mm-hmm. So do you see the market rallying from here to year end? So uh, I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, you know, again, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you'll fill the, the, the tech the tech boom and the AI boom will, you know, dominate everybody's, everybody's thinking. But uh, assuming that 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 doesn't end up in a mania, then I, I think the market still is ends up being a, a little bit richly priced and, uh, you know, and vulnerable to a a correction given where we see bond yields and that's the whole thing for me is bond yields are much and cash is much more competitive right now and so i'm very reluctant to take on that exposure um you know over that intermediate term uh that that we could get short term there could be some enthusiasm for the debt ceiling being passed and and maybe this ai and you know anything could happen in the short term but I think valuations, when you start to compare them relative to what we can get in cash and bonds, uh, cash and bonds provide some uh, formidable uh, alternatives. All right. Well, since you're a global macro strategist, I'm going to ask you, where would you be putting money to work today? So I think there are a a few areas I I mentioned, uh, of of course, in in just a few minutes ago in, in, um, in bonds and fixed income. Uh, things like mortgage-backed securities look uh, reasonably attractive to me. Uh, anything up in quality, some of these high-grade uh, investments, structured products, um, you know, cash, uh, I, I think all these uh, can, can work. Um, you know, longer term, uh, I, I do see some themes that will continue to endure, uh, and that is we're still going to be facing some supply side challenges and particularly in things like housing. Uh, and that's looked much more attractive over the, the last six months or so. Um, even some select commodities that will be needed for the green revolution and the electrification 
um, you know, I, I think there's, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing this, this case for um, security and over-efficiency. I think that's another big theme, whether that's defense security, cybersecurity, energy security, food security. So any of the areas that take advantage of that type of security and the so-called reshoring uh, and anything to increase labor productivity because we're, we're increasing, uh, we're, we're, we're very tight on the labor market and any sort of increase in productivity would be a, wel a welcome sign. So those are some areas that I, I particularly, uh, particularly like at, at, the, at the moment. Great. Well, um, Joe, thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, thanks for being here, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you join us again tomorrow. Uh, stay safe and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.